Continuing the subject of the different aspects of the yoga life, let's take something that's more personal than uh, the practice of yoga, and that is inner negativity. You know, in Alice in Wonderland, when someone talks to her about the Mad Hatter, she says, well, I wouldn't want to go there. I don't want to have anything to do with a mad person. And they say, well, but you're crazy too. Everybody here is crazy, and if you weren't crazy, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> Put even a sharper point on it. Somebody once asked Yoganandaji, uh, do you believe in hell? And he smiled and said, where do you think you are? So inner negativity is something we all have. A lot of people try to cover it up, but it's there. So let's think a bit about it. Impulses to negativity or foolishness, whether mental or physical, are existing in our minds in the form of impressions or conditionings produced by previous actions or experiences, usually those from previous lives. Many yogis start worrying and feeling anxious about these impulses, thinking of them as sins, temptations, wrong thinking, and such like. And they can actually just torment themselves with this kind of thought. I can also add for you that uh, some kind of obsession with getting rid of the ego is utterly absurd and utterly foolish and just causes a person to be like a puppy chasing its own tail. Sri Ramana Maharshi said that this is like finding a th the thief and telling him, uh, I mean, making him a policeman and saying, now you go arrest yourself. Those who regularly practice meditation and order their inner and outer life so that there's nothing that counteracts or conflicts with the yoga practice doesn't have any need for such kind of worry or self-torture. Speaking about these negative and troublesome things, Shankara says... They are dissolved along with the receptacle, the chitta, that is the very substance of the lower mind. Because, he says, they have no effect. They're not given attention. For when a thing is falling of itself, there is no point in searching for something to make it fall. So we see meditation is the answer. The yoga life is the answer. Timney adds, as the object of meditation continues to fill the mind completely, there could be no question of emptying the mind. Therefore, we don't have to worry about this in meditation. Not what we shouldn't do in meditation should obsess us, but we should be intent on what we should do. I read a story when I was, I think, seven or eight years old that bothered me tremendously. It was about a man that got a secret formula for making gold out of water and he was told to do all this complex stuff and he said but you must not at any time think of a green monkey otherwise it won't work so of course uh, anybody that learned it 
would be in the process and think, well, I mustn't think of a green monkey. And then they thought of the green monkey. So if we concentrate on this is what I must not do rather than the virtue of which we should say that I must do. See, this is what this is the way the priority of our thinking should be. You don't think I'm not going to think about the the rude things somebody said to me when I go to meditate. No, you think when I go to meditate, I am going to think solely of God and of the means to reach God. We should do this. We shouldn't think I'm never going to lie again. We should rather say I am always going to speak the truth in the future. This is an extremely important principle. So if we will fill our mind and life with spiritual practice, there won't be room for other things and for wrong actions and wrong thoughts. That, of course, is very easily said, but it can be done. For the great masters prove it can be done. Passing on to another subject. I knew a man, I know him very well, actually, who... Whenever he was ill and someone suggested that he take some kind of medication or go to the doctor, he would say, I'm too sick right now to take medicine. I'll take it when I'm better. I heard him say it more than once. The first time I heard it, I was absolutely astounded. I'd heard a lot of silly things in my life, but I'd never heard anything as silly as for a person saying, I'm too sick to take the cure. But you know, we tend to do the same thing regarding meditation. It's the only way to real peace, but when our lives are being swept with all kinds of storms of grief and disaster and fears and anger, negative impulses and such like, we say the same thing. I'm just too upset to meditate. I just can't sit right now. I'm just, I'm just completely overcome by this. I'll do it later. But meditation is the only thing that will soothe and eliminate all the disturbed thoughts and inner states. If we never sat to meditate until our mind was going to be calm, then we'd never meditate, would we? And maybe that is the purpose of the deluding ego in convincing us that we should take such a mistaken attitude. So whenever any distracted or negative conditions arise in our minds and lives, Meditation is the key to peace and clear thinking. St. John, the beloved disciple, encourages us. For he wrote in his fourth epistle, You are of God, little children, and have overcome the world, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So don't let anything in the world keep you from meditating. For he that is in you which is both your own divine, eternal, immortal spirit and the divine, eternal, immortal God with whom you are one is right there waiting for you to enter the shelter of meditation and find peace and eliminate the, your susceptibility to being distracted by all these negative things. Since we're on the topic of what is inside, I like to talk about a really, really important thing for the yogi, not just the beginner, but for the adept yogi as well. K 
Keep it inside. Now live it out outside. Manifest it outside. But don't dissipate the calmness and the centering you gain through meditation by talking about it to others. Experiences in meditation are not only subtle, they're fragile. They're as delicate as spun glass, and speaking about them can shatter their beneficial effects. This is not just my experience, it's the experience of many people. You know, many creative writers find that they must not talk about what they're planning to write, especially about the plots of stories, that they find that if they do talk it out and describe it, that somehow they lose that inner inspiration, which was actually an impulse to express it. But they've already expressed it by talking to someone. And you can harm even creative activity by talking about it too much. So to brag, to eulogize, to swap notes about meditation experiences is very harmful. Please, please do avoid it. Don't let anyone lure you into it. And don't let your ego push you into it. Don't satisfy any curiosity about your personal yogic experiences or benefits, except in the most general terms. I mean, you can say, yes, I find them more peaceful. Yes, I find them more focused. Yes, I find I'm more free, free from anxiety and so on. Of course, that's all right, but be careful even in that. Keep it to just a minimum. So, yes, you can tell people meditation helps you, but as I say, only in a general way, unless you feel intuitively that you should be more specific. And that can happen, though rarely. When people seem truly interested in spiritual life and serious about it, Recommend the things that have been helpful to you. Recommend the practices. Teach them the practices. Or if you've gotten them from some kind of publication, well, tell them, why don't you get that? In fact, recommend books, but you know, don't give them the books. Say, if you read the books, you'll find out. I spent a lot of money giving books to people who did absolutely nothing with them. If they're really true, sincere seekers, they will go and get the books. They will go and listen to the talks. They will go and find the satsang they need. Now let's consider the very place where you're going to meditate. In other words, we can give a lot of advice about meditation and practice in general, but uh, where do you meditate? I, I have to say that as the years have gone by, I have been very surprised to see how few people comparatively, uh, establish in their home a, a place for meditation. I mean, a, an appropriate place for meditation. Now, a lot of people live in very small places. I used to live in a two-room apartment. I knew others who did. What I did was I just, there was a coffee table. It was a furnished apartment. I got a cloth, I covered it over, I put holy depictions on that and put it right in the uh, middle of the wall of what was my living bedroom, and uh, that's the way it was. But I had it, it was there, and I sat and meditated. Other people came and meditated with me. To just 
get up in the morning, sit on the bed, maybe have a picture on the opposite wall and meditate is all right if that's all you can do. But it's good to have an actual space that when you enter it, your mind will immediately become calm because you'll associate it with meditation and will more easily enter a quiet, peaceful state when you sit there. If you can set aside an entire room for practicing meditation, even if it's, say, a large, well-ventilated closet, that is very good. In India, this is the norm. I have lived in homes where they had a meditation room. The St. Thomas Christians in India have, always have an entire room where the whole family goes and prays. And they go there before dawn and they pray and they go there at sunset and they pray. So they have a temple of the spirit right in their own home. So you can imagine how much this keeps the vibrations uplifted. But if you can't have a whole room, just an area in a room is, is adequate. The important thing is that it's devoted exclusively to your meditation. Your place for meditation should be as quiet as possible. And uh, it's my experience that earplugs can be more a distraction than a help because you start feeling pressure in the ears or hear these chirping cricket-like noises that go all the time in the ears or even the sound of your heartbeat. But if you need them, go ahead and use them. Because your place of meditation should ideally be a place where you can most easily forget outer distractions. But if it isn't, you can still manage to practice successfully. The meditation place should be softly or dimly lighted. Full darkness might make you go to sleep. It's good to turn off any electric lights as though we don't perceive it, they're actually always pulsating at a very high rate. And this affects the brain waves and subtly agitates the mind. If you like to have a candle or a wick lamp burning when you meditate, that's good, but they shouldn't be a kind that will flicker. Obviously, the, the room should be moderate in temperature and free from drafts, whether hot or cold, and it should be well ventilated so you don't get sleepy from lack of oxygen in the air. The seat where you sit, whether you sit in a chair, whether you sit on a cushion or kind of carpet on the floor, should be used only, only, only for meditation. It's actually good to have a special kind of shawl or meditation clothing or robe that you only wear when you meditate because that will hold on to the vibrations of meditation and after a while just putting them on will help you in entering a meditative state. Now I can cite uh, an example that has to me great weight and that is the great master Paramahansa Yogananda, who was always with God, always in God. And yet, he had an old bathrobe, an old bathrobe he had had since the 1920s in Boston, that he always meditated in. That is, of course, when he was alone, not in public meditations. 
one of his major disciples, Oliver Black, told me that Yoganandaji had asked him, please keep in touch. Don't just even write letters to me, but please telephone me and, and talk to me occasionally. We should have this contact. But you know, he kept neglecting it and he didn't do it. And he said one time, it had been a long time, months had gone by, perhaps half a year. And so he was meditating and in his meditation room and he felt like opening his eyes, and he opened his eyes, and there was Yoganandaji sitting there, but with his back to him, not looking at him. And he was dressed in this really, as he put it, ratty-looking old bathrobe. And then suddenly Yogananda disappeared, and Oliver Black got the message. All right, <laughs> He is doing to me what I'm doing to him. He won't even turn around and talk to me, and I won't even pick up the telephone to talk to him. So he called Mount Washington, and first he asked to speak to Sister Daya. Later, uh, Sri Dayamata, the president of SRF. When she came on the line, he said, uh, Sister Daya, I know this is strange, but can you tell me, does the master have kind of an old beat-up bathrobe? <laughs> And she said, oh, that awful old thing. He's had it for years. He insists on using it when he meditates. It looks so terrible and so disreputable. We've often discussed stealing it and hiding it or else burning it so he won't be able to get a hold of it. So then he realized his, his experience of seeing Yoganandaji was genuine. So... It's good to have meditation clothing. And as a final point, it's very good to keep sacred symbols or imagery in your meditation place. Anything that reminds you that God is here and that reminds you that as this holy person attained, so I can attain. This is very, very important. Holy imagery is a major help to spiritual life. And there I think we can uh, stop the consideration and take it up later. <laughs>